I, I laid out my journey through um, divorce and, and uh, some pretty severe depression that hit me, some anxiety, some fear and doubt. And it wasn't, it's, you know, it's not a story that, of course, is maybe, I would say, enjoyable for me to tell. Um, but I felt Holy Spirit prompted me. And um, my hope is that, you know, our stories, our stories that we walk through, our life that we walk through, it shined, it, we can take those things and, and, and see Jesus' light come into it and, and then use it to shine light in dark places, that the enemy is not the champion of my story. And I've got a comeback story. I'm coming back. And so that, uh, you know, Holy Spirit allows it to be a part of the restorative process. He's a resurrecting king who's resurrecting me. And so, it's, and so that, that's, you know, I remind you, it's not because I think my story is important. It's not. More so because your story is important to me. Your stories. And, and that hopefully my vulnerability um, opens us up to a new level of, of vulnerability and trust as, as the body of Christ here. Not, not trust in me, although I hope that happens too but a trust that we can all be redeemed. We can all be redeemed by a resurrecting and a restorative king. So uh, this can be a part of your comeback story. That's what this whole series has been about. So what happens next? What happens uh, when you are coming back from a dark place and you're coming back from a pit, from the lowest of the low places. I'm, I'm talking to the mess ups and, and the misfits this morning, the all have fallen short of the glory of God people in this room. I don't know if that's any of, uh, but you know, I'm speaking to you this morning. And the big question today is how does our God respond? How does our God respond when we've said to him, yes, I'll follow you and I'll surrender my life to you. And then some temptation comes along or something horrible happens. Divorce becomes part of your story. Um, we lose our cool. We blow it. Um, you know, we, we're a sinner set free, you know, in Vegas, you know, <laughs> and, and we're like everybody else who does things that they regret in Vegas and they want it to stay in Vegas. We're like, what happens in Vegas stays there. And, and what happened when I messed up stays hidden. And we, a lot of times we let it eat us apart inside. And so I hope not. That's, that's, that's exactly what I don't want for us. And so I want to talk to you this morning and ask the question, what's next? What's next when you're, when you're in a comeback story? How does our loving God respond when we've fallen, when we've failed, when we've been in the pit, when you've been in the darkest of places, when we haven't lived maybe the way that he purposed for us to live? So to get us started, do we have any kid movie lovers in the house tonight? Uh, all right, all right. You, I, I don't know what your Disney threshold is. For me personally, kids' movies are okay. Some of them are even pretty great. But what I love the most, and, and I, I don't know if some of you in the room might be with me, is the experience of watching a movie with kids. It's like you become young again, right? And you live it and you experience it through their eyes. It's like getting to be a kid again, living through all of the emotions of the movie with your little one. So I'm assuming that at least some of you have seen The Lion King, right? It's uh, just, you know, so you remember the part. I'm, oh, Spoiler alert here. I, you know, it's been 29 years since the release date, so there's got to be some kind of rule that says that I'm in the clear now. <laughs> but do you remember when the king lion, the father, Mufasa is his name, um, he falls into the ravine and the, the trampling scene, and, and he's not getting up. He's done. He's gone. He's, he's lost his life. And I remember watching that in the theater. Um, I would have been about 17 
And no surprise, I have tears running down my face in that scene. I don't know if any of you that happened in the theater. I mean, that was the scene that kind of grabbed me. You know, why isn't he getting up? And it was the saddest thing I'd ever seen in my life. Disney, why do you do that to children? Um, But even more memorable to me was the young lion's response. Do do you remember? Now, the reality is, you know, that there were a lot of larger forces um, in play at the death of his father at the moment, yet it was kind of this undeniable, you know, fact that it was Simba's willful act of defiance against his dad that brought about that chaos. Do you remember when that landed on him in that scene and he's kind of realizing, you know, the, the situation when the reality of is I'm a part of this, I'm a part of this chaos right now. Do you remember his response? He ran. He ran. Simba ran and, and, he, and he went off to live kind of this different life. Now, now was it the worst life ever? Was it a life of crime? <laughs> no, but he made some little buddies, you know, who can, Akuna Matata and, uh, and all that stuff. But, you know, and this is a big but. He was miles from where he was supposed to be. He was miles from where he was supposed to be and from whom he was supposed to be. He was supposed to be king, right? And in his running, he abandoned a world that desperately needed him to engage. And so now, why do I mention that? Because you don't have to be in ministry long to see that play out, like all the time. People, you know, saying they were all about the things of God, walking with him, and then something happens, and all of a sudden, you know, I'm not the worst guy that you've ever seen, but I'm over here where I shouldn't be. And I remember a time when I was, I was at the church office and I was, I was talking with this guy, he's right over there, talking with the guy that was just smashed. And we were talking and, and in the middle of that, um, he brought up the fact that he grew up in the church. And uh, he was there um, every Sunday when he was growing up. And then, you know, he looked at himself, he was telling me his story. And he kind of gets to the place where, you know, this happened. He's like, what happened? You know, I was involved in the things that God was doing. I was there every Sunday and then something happened along the way and now I'm here. I remember chatting with a stranger at Walmart one time. I was buying some of that 100% DEET spray before I was going on a trip to Honduras with Tiffany. And um, in conversation, as I was standing there buying that, as soon as I said that, to whoever it was that was sitting there, this person that I was talking to lit up. And she was like, you know, we used to do stuff like that. And then she kind of cut off mid-sentence and kind of broke eye contact and said, yeah, my, my, my brother still does that stuff. And it was like, you could see this like wave or, or something like came kind of crash over that there, was a t- that there was a time that I was excited about the possibilities of what God could do with my life and, and something happened and I'm not the worst human that you've ever met, but I'm just, I'm kind of over here now. And I don't know if you grew up going to camp, um, but I did, at least that is after mom talked me into going when I was about 14 years old. 
And after that, because of where God took me with the, the next gen ministry, I never stopped going. I was a part of camp culture for about 27 years of my life. And really, I still make it a priority to be involved in camp ministry. Now I love camp. I love what it does in students' lives. God uses it to transform lives. I see it all the time. But for me, in the first couple of years at camp, my nickname was Pee Wee. Um, I was long and skinny as a stick, and, and um, someone thought that I looked like Pee Wee Herman, if anybody remembers who that is anymore. But um, I remember, uh, you know, this is how it usually happened. You know, on Thursday night, everybody got saved, right? <laughs> it's like magic. After a couple days, you know, of lack of sleep and, you know, the nutritious camp food, that everybody is in an emotional state, and they'd get us all in there, and the band would get our emotions stirred up, and, and then the speaker would get up and get us riled up, and by the end of the night, everybody's crying, and, you know, we're singing, friends are friends forever, you know? Yes, they would have testimonies on the last night. One by one, we'd get up there and the guys that we've been hanging all week, you know, they're up there saying, I got saved. Didn't you get saved last year? Yeah, but just let them go, you know. <laughs> um, but for most of us, we would get up there and we would offer these big promises of what we were gonna do with God with these, this, this hearty affirmation from the crowd. Hey guys, this is it for me. You know, I, I'm gonna go, I'm, not, I'm never gonna sin again. Somebody's out there, yeah, he's had such a good week at camp. I think he can do it this time. I really think he can. <laughs> I think it's over for him. I'm going to tell the whole world about Jesus. You know, he, he's the next Billy Graham. This is it. And we would do it. But there wasn't one of us that, you know, maybe two weeks later, you know, had kind of broken almost every promise that we had made. And we would be back in our bedrooms surrounded by the same, maybe there was addictions that would kind of, we'd fall back into, falling back into some of the same traps going, what is wrong with me? I guess this whole walk with Jesus and him using people in their life is true for some people, but maybe not for me. So I'm not gonna be the worst person that you've ever met, but I'm just gonna kind of live over here somewhere, living in mediocrity. And so you're thinking, why are we talking about this? Because the question for today is, I mean, I think we've all kind of had this experience. So what's next when you're coming back? What is God thinking about when you've kind of, you know, said you would do all of these things and you've kind of been in a place where you've messed up or you've fallen into a pit, something happened and kind of a train wreck happened. So that's where we're going this morning. And I promise this is gonna look up and we're, we're gonna get to the good part before we're done here. And we're gonna do this today by looking at the life of Peter. I love to tell this story. Peter was one of Jesus' earliest and closest disciples and, and he was the one that was all heart but half mind sometimes. And I'm talking about, you know, kind of a ready, aim, fire type of guy. He, you know, he, he'd charge first and not even think through, you know, everything kind of guy. I mean, he's just a, put your head down and go, man, right? And so some of you in the room are thinking, that's me, that's, this is me, this is me in the scripture, I'm Peter. And so anyway, in the middle of Jesus' ministry, there, there was a moment where he's asking his disciples, you remember this, who do you say that I am? And uh, so Peter was the only one that had the courage to step forward and say, I think you're the son of God. And, and so, yeah, that's right, Peter. And yet in a moment later, when Jesus said, you know, I'm going to the cross for you, Peter's the one that stepped up and you remember what he did? He rebuked Jesus. <laughs> Don't you talk about crosses around here, Jesus. I mean, I think most of us can agree, you just don't rebuke the son of God. <laughs> That's not how things work. And so on the night that Jesus was betrayed, 
Jesus asked his disciples to pray with him and they kept falling asleep. Soldiers came in to arrest Jesus. And do you remember when they woke up? Peter was the one that was gonna go to war against them. Remember that? And what's weird is that this text tells us that he grabs his fishing knife, even though in the book of Luke, it says there was swords, you know, two swords with them. Yet he grabs a knife and you remember, he tries to kill one of the guys and just hits him in the ear, kind of slices the ear. He's trying to end a dude <laughs> and he just gets a lobe. <laughs> he just wasn't that of an organized guy. You know, he just kind of shoot, aim, fire, go for it. So Jesus tells him to knock it off. And, and, and then they arrest Jesus and lead him to the courtyard. Peter and John follow, and then they're, they're in the midst of this entire social fear that, that's happening here with all the adrenaline sweeping down. And Peter watches the whole world mock and reject Jesus. And now it's in that context that somebody says to Peter, hey, aren't you that guy? Aren't you that? No, I, I don't know. No, no, I, sure, because I thought I saw you with him. Aren't, aren't you one of his guys? No, I don't know him. So you even kind of sound like, I think you're one of his people. No, I don't know him, right? And, and to prove he's not one of those Jesus people, he starts cussing again like a sailor. And the text tells us that not only did the rooster start crowing, and Jesus, which Jesus predicted would happen, but it says that Jesus looked right at Peter. Looked right at him. And do you remember Peter's response? He ran. He ran. There was a lot of shame at that moment. Peter is a lot like us. And a lot like Simba when confronted by our shame and our mess-ups. What does he do? He runs. So when we arrive in our text, John 21, that's where we're gonna be this morning. Verse one, it says, later Jesus appeared once again to a group of his disciples by Lake Galilee. This is after the death and, and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. And he starts appearing to people. So there's this excitement. Jesus is back from the grave, but there's also confusion. But there's, a, there's hope building. And in the midst of that, an angel comes to one of the women and says, go tell the disciples, disciples and Peter. Did you catch that when you're reading this? <laughs> go tell the disciples and Peter to meet him, Jesus, by the sea. They include his name. That's in Mark 16, verse 7. It says, I, I think the angel threw in this and Peter because Peter probably you know, wouldn't have showed up otherwise. They put his name in there probably because he didn't think he was invited anymore. This invitation is for the people who are still following him. I messed up. But he hears that and Peter, and he shows up. And then as we arrive in this text, this is when Peter gets there. It's uh, verse three. It says, Peter told them, I'm going to go fishing. Now, commentators, they divide on the significance of that. Some people say that he and the disciples, they decide that decide to go with him. We're just going to kill some time and have some fun, go fishing as people do. But it says later in the verse that they fished through the night. Now, fishing isn't my area, but I'm just guessing that you don't generally fish all night for fun. Some, some people say that maybe they're trying to make some side money. We don't know. But you've got to understand who's talking 
and, and what they just said. This is Peter saying, I'm going fishing. And it says later in the verse that they fished through the night. And, and so uh, yeah, you look at this, let me, let me just try to paint a picture. If I come up to one of my kids and I said this sentence to them, I'm gonna go play basketball, they might fall on the floor laughing because it's just not something that, you know, I'm, I'm very good. And then after they gather themselves, you know, get the mental image of, of their head of me going down the gym and doing my best to, you know, pop the ball in. You know, we'll, we'll go and shoot hoops and stuff, but it's just not something that I go and do. And um, so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a funny scene. If they, if they put that in their head, that's it's not gonna be something. But on the contrary, I'm old enough to remember Michael Jordan and um, when he held a press conference, anybody remember the press conference that in this unfortunate little foray into to, to baseball for him? And he, and he said the exact same sentence. He said, I'm gonna play uh, basketball. Nobody asked him, what do you mean, Mike? What do you mean you're gonna go play? Everybody expected Michael Jordan to go play basketball, right? So this was Peter. When he said, I'm gonna go fishing, he was, he was a fisher. Everybody understood, you know, this is Michael Jordan talking about basketball. This is his lane. He can play basketball in his sleep, right? So for me, reading this passage, this is Peter. He's a career fisherman, just like his father before him, right up until the the moment of Jesus saying, put your nets down, Peter. I have a whole new life for you with me. But now Peter has betrayed Jesus. And so when Peter gets to the sea, he says, you know what, guys? I'm just going to go fishing. I'm not going to be the worst guy that you've ever met, but I'm just going to be over here. I'm going to be doing What's in my lane? This is my lane. I, I can go fishing. And I'll be honest, you know, I've had the temptation to be like him. And I've seen a lot of people do the same thing. What's he doing? He's, he's kind of, it's, it's kind of the run, right? It's kind of the, the whole, I'm going to get off the scene. I'm going to get off the picture. I'm going to kind of, kind of go disconnect. This is my comfort area. I think for Peter, he does what a lot of us do here. He goes to work. He gets busy. He, I, I meet a lot of people and the, the, the way they wall out shame from bad choices that they've made in the past or tragic things that happened to them in the past on your notes is we pinball, this is us, we pinball between busyness and distraction, right? We kind of use the things in our lives to just get busy. And so the solution becomes, let me get into my work. Let me get into this thing that I'm really comfortable with. And it may be a good redemptive work, but you take a hard dive into the work to prove that you are somebody. And maybe you try to silence the voice of condemnation that's happening in your head. Maybe it's a voice from your mother or your father, or for, you know, for me, it was junior hires in gym class. Or maybe you know, it's just to wall off the shame from the bad decisions that you made. Let me dive into something where I feel like I can win, something that I'm good at, right? And, and when that's insufficient, let me just get something to distract me so I don't have to deal with this. And so we pinball from busyness to distraction. And, and you know, Peter, in this moment, he says, man, I don't know how to deal with all this. I'm just gonna go fishing. That's, that's what it reads like to me. And, and in reality, what's happening is he's saying, you know, let me take it. Away, a step away from what God wants me to do, uh, to do in my life. I know I'm just going to go and get busy. He's hiding away, maybe in his shame. And it says in the same text, and they all replied, we'll go with you. Hmm. You know, we influence people more than we think. Peter was a leader in that moment. And so he influenced them. You too are, <laughs> you are too, by the way, <laughs> you're a leader. You know that, right? None of us are alone. We, we all influence people, every single one of us. And I can think of several times, um, how about as a parent? My kids, 
have mimicked my ill behavior. He's like, oh, did I just see that come? Oh man, right? Have you ever seen that? They mimicked something that I did or repeated words or phrases over the years that I shouldn't have said. And like, you feel shame, right? Whether, whether it was that I lost myself in anger lashed out or that I was laughing at something inappropriate, right? Whatever it was. And then my kids picked that up from me. Oh man. Right. And so, (laughs) I mean, what about being a pastor? I just went through a divorce. And aside from that, you know, I've, I've done, and I've said some pretty Stupid things sometimes. I've told the story before. It was uh, when Deanna and I were Destiny's youth pastors and we were on a service trip with the youth group and we were doing some work down on the reservation, um, down in mission. It was nighttime and I was downstairs with the boys and our group was all tired after a long day of work and and there was celebratory noise coming from upstairs. And one of the boys in my room, I was dead tired. We were all dead tired. It was a hard, long day of work. One of the boys next to me in my room says, it's past lights out. Are you going to do something about that? And so, you know, I had to, I, I was challenged and I wasn't going to let him think that I wasn't a good leader. And, or, and so now Deanna was upstairs with the girls. Um, but when that boy said that in my tired, exhausted state, there was this unholy anger. I think that rose up in me and I pounded up those stairs to yell at the girls to keep quiet and go to sleep, turn out the lights. And do you remember what the girls were doing upstairs? They were worshiping. They were sharing testimonies and singing worship songs and and talking about how good God was that day. And even though it was past lights out, they were keeping people up. Man, I wish I would have handled that a lot differently. I had to apologize not only to those girls in my group, but I I had to have a long conversation with my co-pastor because she was not happy with me that night. So listen, I'm not responsible for every decision other people I've influenced in my life make, but my words and my actions carry weight. And so do yours. And our lives carry the weight of influence. And I've talked to a lot of people, you know, who kind of reason, well, it's just my life. It's my decision. It's not going to affect anyone else. And that's not true. Do you, do, you know, do you think that there aren't little people watching you, right? Or cousins and nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters that look to you for guidance or even just people around you in your circle. So Peter says, I'm going fishing and the disciples go with them. And yet I love it. The text says that they went out and fished through the night, but caught nothing. I think that's just God in love messing with his kids. <laughs> that's what he does. But think about the big picture of this scenario just for a minute. Is God just going to let you go off and waste your life away? Would you do that with one of your kids? If you have a little niece or, or nephew running out into a busy street, would you be like, oh, it's not my problem? Yeah. Yeah. So you would go after him and you would grab him, even if the grabbing hurts, right? Do you think that God is just going to let his disciples roll off and disappear? This is the question. And said, so, no, I'm coming for you. Do you think that he's just going to let you run away? Someone he made, he, you're made in his image. And so he's coming for you. That's, that's what this morning is all about. And so you say, Sean, how do you know that? Well, let me tell you one of the ways that you know God is coming after you. Often, I think he'll allow, maybe 
even some discomfort in your life. The, the way that you are living, it's just not working. And so that night they caught nothing, verse four, it says. But just as bad, uh, the day was breaking, Jesus stood on the shore and he's coming for them. But it says the disciples didn't realize that it was him. Now, why didn't they know? These are, these are guys who lived side by side with him for three years. How did they not recognize him, right? Uh, was, was he too far away? The text says uh, later that he was 100 yards off. Was it his disfigurement? You know, uh, because, you know, we found out in Revelation that he still bears the scars. Um, is, it, is it just disbelief that they're like, I can't believe it's Jesus because I just saw him die? What is it? I'll tell you what I think. I think I've got biblical evidence for this too. I think they don't recognize him at this moment because he has a sense of humor <laughs> and you see it throughout the resurrection appearances. He's constantly messing with the disciples. I mean, you see, okay, just one chapter before, just one example. Mary goes to anoint his body. She shows at the tomb. The, stones, the tomb, the stone is rolled away and she sees Jesus's body is gone, right? So she starts crying. And then Jesus shows up and says, why are you crying? He knows why she's crying, right? And then he says, who are you looking for? He knows who she's looking for. And then she starts saying, well, I'm looking for Jesus. I can't find him. And they start this conversation. What is going on here, right? And then John tells us that she thought Jesus was the gardener. Why do you think he was, he was, he was over there in, in the bushes with his gardening gloves on. I don't know. I'll t I, she's looking for Jesus and he has his grubbies out and he's messing with the bushes while he's saying, why are you crying? Do you not see the humor in that? <laughs> I mean, and he's just, he's just letting it ride for a second. And then he's like, Hey Mary. And then she knows who he is and says, and so I think that scriptural grounds for like, I'm just messing with you. Um, this kind of anointing that some of us in the room carry. So Luke tells us that the disciples were walking from Jerusalem seven miles. And it says, Jesus walked up to them, but they were prevented from seeing who he is. So he walks up to them and he says, Hey, what are you guys talking about? They said, are you the only one in Jerusalem that doesn't know these things? And then he says, what things? And they say that they start telling him about his own death and burial and resurrection. You see the pattern here? And for seven miles they walk and Jesus asks, so is that to fulfill the scripture though? You know, <laughs> and he unpacks it for them and they walk in and it says when they um, get to Emmaus, Jesus pretended it's what the text says, Luke 24, 28, as they approached the village, Jesus walked on ahead telling them that he was going on for a great distance. And he's like, well, I guess I'll see you guys later. And he starts to walk off and they're like, hey man, you, you know, you want to come for dinner? And he's like, well, I guess, you know. <laughs> and he waits until the prayer moment when he's, when they're breaking bread, he's like, hey guys, it's me. And then he disappears. <laughs> Jesus did the Frodo thing long before Frodo did. <laughs> So read the text. They, they run seven miles back to Jerusalem. They go to the upper room and they find the other disciples and they say, we just saw Jesus. He's alive. We walked with him for seven miles, you know, and, and he, he didn't tell us who he was. That was weird. But then he reveals himself to us and then he disappeared. We saw him. And while they're explaining this to the other disciples, Jesus appears in their midst and terrifies them because he doesn't go through the door. He just appears. So they think he's a ghost. I'm laughing as I read the text, you know, because it says that Jesus just says, peace be with you. <laughs> you know, <laughs> like calm down. It's just me. 
And then it doesn't, uh, then there he says, do you have any fish? And he starts eating fish. That's what scholars call an internal proof in the Bible. It's just one of the things with the story that helps you know the Bible is true because nobody would make that up. He's like, I'm back. Hey, is that salmon? Hey, you right. <laughs> okay, why mention all this? Verse five. If you have an older translation, it says he calls them brothers, which I, I think is unfortunate. He doesn't use the word brothers. The, the translation that I'm using this morning, it's uh, more of a paraphrase, but it, it says, hey guys. But in the original language, Jesus used the word for children. And stick with me. He uses the, uh, I'm, going, I'm going into English stuff this morning, and I'm, so help me out if I get it wrong. The diminutive, the diminutive <laughs> masculine form, and he calls them little boys. And then he asks them a question. And there's a way to ask a question in a way that assumes a negative answer, right? When Jesus rolls up on the shore, he says to them, little boys, did you catch any fish? He's saying the way that you're living your life right now isn't really working, huh? And they answered him, not a thing. And it says, Jesus shouted to them, throw your net over on the starboard side and you'll catch some. And so they did as he said, and they caught so many fish they couldn't even pull in the net. Now, somebody here is thinking, I've heard this story before. They switch sides and get a bunch of fish. I've heard this. Well, maybe you've heard it here in these verses, or maybe you heard it in Luke chapter seven, because this isn't the first time that Jesus did this miracle. He, d- he does it here, and he did it in the beginning of his ministry on the day that he first called Peter to walk with him. And so I love the way, I, I don't know if anybody remembers the, the, the movie Jesus of Nazareth, the way that movie shows this. Um, I don't know if you're a Jesus movie connoisseur, you know, <laughs> they're not all good. But in, in some of the early ones, especially the acting is pretty weird. So you, you can't even understand the conversation. But like when Jesus first asked Peter to go back out to fish and Peter responds, but we just fished all night and have nothing, but at your will, we will go, you know? And you're like, I don't even understand what's happening. But I love how this movie in particular, Jesus of Nazareth, because you can feel the frustration in the moment when Jesus walks up to them and says, hey, let's go back out and fish, why not? Peter was like, I'll tell you why not. I'll tell you, because I just fished all night and I got nothing. And, and so you feel that tension. He is frustrated and he goes back out there, you know, with his brother and Jesus and they get out there and he starts fishing. There's no fish. And Jesus says, why don't you switch sides? And Peter's response is like, oh, switch sides. Now there's secret fish on that side of the boat. Okay. You know, he really, who is this guy, Andrew? Can you imagine? I'm the, I'm the fisherman. Why are you telling me to put the, the nets on the other side? Are you serious? What, what do you do for, oh, you're a carpenter. Well then, okay. And he's just so frustrated until he finally does it. And then there's so many fish that he couldn't hold, right? And I love it because you see that on his face and it dawns on him that God just stepped into my boat. And do you remember his response this time? He hit his knees and he said, get away from me because I am not a good person. And do you remember Jesus' response? He said, no, I came for you. You're mine now. I have a whole new life for you. Peter, don't miss this. Here in a moment of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus recreates the miracle that he first used to call Peter to walk with him. How does God respond to Peter and his failure and our failure? 
He recreates the miracle that sends the message. This relationship is still open and I'm creating the moment of connection again to let you know, Peter, that you are not too far gone. (laughs) And neither are you. That's why John looks at him and it says, the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it's the Lord. This is for you, Peter, he's calling you. And it's the same with us. How does God treat you in your failure? Is he harsh? Does he yell at you? Some of you you might have this idea that, you know, that's the kind of God he is. You hear this voice of condemnation in your head, constantly recounting your failures, constantly repeating the voice of your childhood that maybe called you a loser, that you won't make it. I I don't know what it was for you, but some of you hear that voice and you've attributed it to God. And so you imagine him on the, on the shore with an angry tone. Hey, get out of the boat. Some of us think he talks that way, but he's not like that. I want you to see this morning that he's playful. He's kind. He recreates the, the miracle to let Peter know that the door is still open. And he recreates the place of connection. And Peter does something I'm hoping some of the, us will do in the room today. He stops running away from God and he starts moving toward him. And it says, when Peter heard him say that, he quickly wrapped his outer garment around him. And because he was athletic, he dove right into the lake to go to Jesus. Another translation says he threw himself into the sea. I love that. No more wallowing in shame, busyness, or distraction. He's moving towards him, not away from him. Was it pretty? Nope. <laughs> I'm not even sure why. You know, he's got his clothes on, his outer, outer garment. Why do you put them on to dive into the water? Nobody does that. But he was going all in and it says he threw himself into the sea. It doesn't look pretty. It's a mess because he's a mess. <laughs> and John, the author of the book, kind of, I think he wants us to see that. And I love this, this kind of this playful competition that you see going on here. You see it in verse eight. John writes, the other disciples then brought the boat to shore, dragging their catch of fish. They weren't far from the land, only about a hundred meters. And he's like saying, the rest of us just rode three times, Peter. You could have done that too. You know, <laughs> it's a little overboard, Peter. Just let him go. Just let him go. And so maybe you're here and you're thinking, you know what, man? I am far from gone, you know, I'm, I, and I don't know the right words to say. I don't know the rules here. I don't know how to do this. And I'm just telling you this morning, you don't have to be pretty. <laughs> this doesn't have to look clean. It's just an honest, like, I'm going to jump in and I'm going to get to Jesus. It doesn't have to be a dive. It, just, it doesn't have to be even throwing yourself in the sea, but it can just be like, I'm, I'm leaning into you, Jesus. And so Peter arrives on the shore in verse nine. It says, when they got to the shore, they noticed a charcoal fire. Remember that, charcoal fire. And in that place, Jesus had laid out some roasted fish and bread. I love that he's already got fish. He already had fish. You know, he he didn't need theirs. He doesn't need anything that you're bringing but he invites them anyway. And he says, bring some of the fish that you just caught. And then verse 12, Jesus said to them, come, let's have some breakfast. Now, what does God do with you 
and your failure? How does he talk to you? Does he yell? Does he shout condemnation? No, he's playful, Darian. He's gentle. He cooks breakfast. Why does he do that? Because you eat breakfast with people that you like. Look, I, I don't know what you've been a part of in life and I don't know what your hands have touched and I don't know what you've seen and I don't know what's been spoken over your life. I don't know. But what I do know is the heart of God. And in the midst of Peter's greatest failure, Jesus recreates the moment of connection and says, I still want to be with you. Nothing has changed. And that's what he's saying to you. That's what the son of God is like. God doesn't look at your failure. He looks at you and he loves you. I, I watched an interview a long time ago with, with George Clooney. Maybe you've seen it. And as a kid, he said he would feel so much guilt over his sin and his failure. And he would put gravel in his shoes and then he would uh, jump off of his bunk bed and land on them to punish himself for his sins because he thought that that's what God wanted. That's about as far from this as you can get. It's not what Jesus is like when you're coming back. He's kind, he's gentle, he's making breakfast. So the disciples sit down and I don't know if Peter was even gonna be able to eat much. I mean, honestly, I don't know. I mean, but, but Jesus sits him down by this charcoal fire and charcoal fire is a very specific word here in the original language that actually only shows up two places in the Bible. It shows up here and it's the type of fire that uh, Peter was warming himself around on the night that he denied knowing Jesus. And Jesus recreates the moment, a flashback to that night. I still want you, Peter. The relationship is open. It's not broken. Jesus recreates the moment of Peter's greatest failure. It's like he's saying, we, we have to deal with this, Peter. We've got to talk about this. And so Jesus pulls Peter in and it says, verse 15, we know this conversation. After they had breakfast, Jesus said to Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, and Peter, Peter, you know, didn't, pick it up about the fire, but he, but he starts to get it here. Jesus never called him by his full name before. It's like when your mama would call you by your full name, you know, Sean, Michael, shop, you know, I've got to go boys. What's happening? I don't know, but it's not good. <laughs> right? Simon, son of Jonah, do you burn with love for me more than these? Now, commentators are divided on what the these are. Some people think it was the disciples because, you know, Peter on the night of Jesus' betrayal said, all of these guys will fall away, not me. They'll reject you. I won't. Some people think uh, this is Jesus looking at Peter and saying, do you still think, you know, that you're tough enough all on your own, you know, without the need of my grace? Other people think that uh, the grammar allows that these are not the disciples, but it's the fish that Jesus holds up the fish and says, you know, do you love me more than these? I called you away from fishing, Peter to be a fisher of men. I called you to be something more with me, Peter. Are you just gonna settle for, you know, the busyness, the safe income? Is that all you've got a vision for in your life? What, what do you love more, Peter? What do you want more? I don't know what it is, but part of me, you know, thinks that Jesus just pointed to the disciple eating fish to kind of cover both. Do you love me more than this? 
kind of getting them both. And Peter answered, yes, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Then feed my lambs, Jesus said. Jesus repeated the question again the second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you burn with love for me? And Peter answered, yes, my Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. Then take my sheep, Jesus said. Then Jesus asked him again, Peter, son of Jonah, do you have great affection for me? Peter was saddened by being asked a third time. He said, my Lord, you know everything. You know that I burn with love for you. Jesus replied, then feed my lambs. Now, is Jesus being mean here? I used to think that he was. I used to think that he was kind of rubbing Peter's face in it. You know, do you love me, Peter? Yes. Okay, well, it didn't look like that a couple nights ago. So let's run it again. Do you love me, Peter? That's what I thought. That's, that's how I, I thought God treated us when we, we failed, but I don't think like that anymore. Take a closer look at the passage and think about this for a second. If Jesus wanted to shame Peter, what direction would you point? You'd point backward, right? You'd pack, point back to the, what happened in the past. What does Jesus do? He talks about what he has for him, what the plans are for him. He's talking, he focuses forward. Do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I, I, I know. Then, then let's feed my sheep. Do you, do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I know you do. So let's go. Let's move on and feed my, do you love me, Peter? Yeah, I know. So let's get on mission. Let's feed my sheep. I think what Jesus is doing here is that he's saving Peter's life. If Jesus did not recreate this moment of dislocation, then every time a rooster crowed in the morning, it would have been this clarion call to Peter, you're a loser, you're the one who betrayed him, you're the one that walked away, you're the one. And Peter would have felt that shame and it would have dominated his present and colored, you know how that happens when you carry stuff from the past, it dominates your future. I think Jesus recreates the moment of P Peter's greatest wound, that charcoal fire, not to hurt Peter, but to heal him. And he'll do the same with you. When God begins to move in your life, he'll fly forward the hands of grace. And the, the relationship is still open. And he may eventually take you to a moment of some of your biggest wounds. That might happen. Might, might better get prepared for that. But Jesus will not put his hands on your wounds to hurt you. He will do it in order to heal. Come on, somebody. <laughs> Zion broke his arm in the youth room when I was a youth pastor at Pine Valley Church in Bayfield. He was running in a circle on, on top of some of the metal chairs that I had set up for youth group that night and he slipped off. And when I ran up to him, his arm was kind of bent backwards in a shape that it shouldn't have been, a very unnatural position. And I yelled. And I don't remember what I said, but I do remember having to apologize to some people in that room a little bit later because I was a little hysterical. Thankfully, I, I don't remember how or when, but you know, his arm kind of went back, mostly back into the position before we got him to the hospital. But I've heard stories, and maybe you have too, of, of like femurs being dislocated and the doctor jumping backward and just kind of hitting the leg. <laughs> Somebody, we got a wincer back there, back into position. And the pain is so bad that you like scream. But you just, you know, like so you're sweating profusely. The, the doctors do that crazy stuff not to hurt, but to heal. And God's 
will we'll go back to the same, you know, he'll, he'll draw you back to that same place that maybe hurt a lot and he's gonna look that part of your life and I don't know what it is, maybe it's a statement your dad said about you long ago, you know, that you've absorbed and you've believed in the deepest part of you and that statement has become part of who you are and maybe it's the approval, you know, that you never got from mom or maybe it's a thing that you did that you don't wanna repeat, not even to yourself, but the shame of it haunts you and for some of you, stuff that's happened to you or the pit that you were in determines the way that you even walk into a room. Whether or not you make eye contact or how you talk and how you speak and what kind of work you do and how you go about it. And some of us are dominated by wounds of the past and they're dominating our present and determining our future. And so Jesus will take you to that place of wounding, not to shame you, but to take the shame out. Not to relive the pain, but to relieve it. And so Jesus comes to Peter and says, let's do this. Do you you love me? Yes, you know that I love you. I know, so let's move on, Peter. Do you love me? Yeah, I, I know you do. So let's move on, Peter. Do you love me? Let's get on with this. Let's deal with this wound and let's go. Don't let the failures of the past determine your future. Peter, let's move on. Let's deal with this. And some of, some of us in the room need to deal with that. And, and that will be a process. And it will be in moments like this, sitting around a fire with trusted people that you talk about where you're coming back from. For some of you, it will be with a counselor. For some of you, it happens on Thursday nights, Friday nights right here at the church, right? We're seeing some healing happening. For some of you, it will be with dear friends. For some of you, it will be this morning as you just kind of confess to God, you know, but Jesus modeled this for us and we sit around fires and we sit in circles and and, uh, with people around us to deal a blow to the pain. And then we rise and move on because the world is full of sheep. And that's what Jesus says. And that's what he's talking about. And that's, you know, he's talking about us when he's talking about sheep. And that's not a compliment. I mean, we all know that sheep are not impressive animals. (laughs) Sheep are like nature's victims. Sheep will die of dehydration like five feet from water. It's like, it's right there. (laughs) You know, they can't see it. You know, they can't bite hard. They can't run fast. They don't have quills. And Jesus, you know, looks at Peter and says, Peter, look at the world. Just pick up, pick your eyes up, move your eyes up and look at the horizon. Look at the sheep. Look at how dangerous this world is and look at how many difficult and scary things are in the world right now. And look at our schools. Look at the kids. They, they don't have the equipment within themselves to deal with the harsh realities around them. So Jesus looks at Peter and says, go feed them. Take care of them, Peter. Don't get so wrapped up in your past, you know, that with your self-involved victim and denying, you know, helping those people that I've called you to save. Peter, I love you. Yes, your, your past was bogus and we all saw it, but my grace is sufficient for you. So let's heal the wound and let's move on, Peter, because I want you to feed my sheep, son. And this is here for you too this morning, you are not too far gone. I mean, how many comeback stories do we have to look at in the scripture to see the story repeat over and over and over again? Our God is a resurrecting king who resurrects us. 
and he'll put his hand on your wound, not to hurt you, but to heal you and to save your life. I want to close with this. Um, Johnny Cash had a great career, but he got hooked on, on drugs and amphetamines and you can read about it. You can watch the movie. Um, you can read about it in his autobiography. He's got a whole chapter dedicated to all the cars that he wrecked when he was on drugs. He started a forest fire and almost wiped out an endangered species of condors. He was a mess. And he torpedoed his career and he alienated his friends and his loved ones and his family. And his whole life was kind of going up in flames. And so at that moment, he looked around and he said, all right, and he found a cave. Anybody hear this story before? He found a cave, he got a flashlight, and he said, I'm gonna crawl as deep as I can into this cave until the batteries in this flashlight go out, and then I'm gonna disappear, and that will be the end of Johnny Cash. That's what shame will do to you. It'll make you turtle up. And he did it. He, he crawled into a cave. The lights went out in the battery, the flashlight, and he curled up in a ball and he said, this is it. And then he said, the strangest thing happened. I felt God in that moment of my greatest shame. It says he came closer to me than he ever had. And he, he heard God say, no, I still want you. And Johnny says, but it, I was so deep in there, there was no way out and there was so much darkness and I couldn't see where to go. But he just started moving and he said, somehow as I started moving, I saw a light and I moved toward it. And when he got to the mouth of the cave, two of his friends were there and he said, I don't even know how they knew where I was. And they took him to the hospital because he was still hooked on amphetamines and he began a journey of getting sober. And after that, he launched into a stretch of his career where he is doing crusades with Billy Graham. Anybody remember that? <laughs> Singing about a God who would save even a wretch like me. He did movies about Jesus, about the apostle Paul. And at the very end of his life, I remember this as a teenager. They were playing his videos on MTV where his swan song, the last song that was kind of a hit for him was all about the grace that's available through Jesus to pull you out of the darkest places. Why? Because he had the clout to show you that he had actually lived that story. So I don't know how far you've gone. I, I don't know how far you, know, you feel maybe you know, you had an incident, um, sincere faith that got derided, you know, a long time ago. It may be just that it's been a really hard week. I don't know, but you're not too far gone. God rejoices in coming to those who are in the midst of failure or in the midst of shame and saying the relationship is still open. I love you. The wound can be covered by my grace. If you'll just let me, I will heal it. And I love it. Jesus looked at Peter. This is the last bit of scripture this morning. And then he said, Peter, follow me. 
He said it, verse, verse 18, Peter, listen, when you were younger, you made your own choices and you went where you pleased. But one day when you're old, others will tie you up and escort you where you would not choose to go. And you will spread out your arms. And Jesus said this to Peter as a prophecy of what kind of death you would die. And then he said, Peter, follow me. So, you know, we're all gonna die. Death rates are pretty much the same. One to one ratio, right? All of us. And yet he looks at Peter and he says that your life and your death can bring glory to me. And I want that for my life. That's what I want. I want my life and even my death to bring glory to Jesus. I don't want my life to be dictated by my failures. I want it to be driven by my faith. That I'm someone who believes that Jesus can heal. And it says, then Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. So when Peter saw him, he asked Jesus, what's gonna happen to him? And I love that scene because you get the picture that Jesus is you know, standing up from the fire where he made breakfast. It's time to move on. And he says, Peter, follow me. Peter looks back at him. Well, what about him, Jesus? He points to John and, and Jesus asks, well, what are you worried about for him? And Jesus says to him, if, you decide to, uh, if I decide to let him live until I return, what concern is that of yours? You must still keep on following me. <laughs> the last thing, you know, we, we like to say, you know, but what about them? They did this. And Jesus gently responds, I'm talking to you and I'm talking about you. <laughs> you, you follow me. Well I, well, I want to, but my boyfriend doesn't want to. We're not talking about your boyfriend. You, you follow me, Peter. Yeah, well, I want to, but nobody else is, you know, at my work is doing that. Well, we're not talking about them right now. <laughs> you follow me. Just watch what I can do with someone that trusts me, that follows me. So the, the last thing I wanna say, and I know someone is gonna say, this is all great, but you, know, you don't even know me or what I've done. Um, how can Jesus you know, wave a hand and just dismiss you know, all the things that I've been a part of? And let me tell you this morning, you know, that's, that's really not what Jesus does. How, how can Jesus be so gracious to Peter when he denied knowing him, right? We look at that and we say, well, what's happening here? It's because Jesus didn't dismiss Peter's sin. Jesus can be gracious here because he already paid for it. He paid for it. And for ours. And his death and his burial and his resurrection that we're gonna share in the Easter story and Palm Sunday next week, he looked at Peter and, and could say, I know what you did, Peter, but I already paid for it. I know what you were a part of and I buried it, Peter. I know what was dominating your life and I put it in the grave. And now I'm rising. And, and so let me ask you something, Peter. Are you resurrecting with me? Follow me. Jesus didn't dismiss Peter's sin. He paid for it. And I think he would say to us this morning, you know, I've forgiven Peter and I'm calling you to come back too. Your heavenly father is watching and waiting for your return. In fact, if you listen, I think you can even probably hear him calling your name this morning. So let's just listen. Heavenly father, we love you.
I love that you're the kind of God that makes a fish breakfast on the beach. Crafts a story, brings us back to just a moment to a relationship with you. You can heal every dark part of our lives, every broken part, every hurting part. And I can just hear you calling our name this morning. And Sean, follow me. Herb, follow me. Patty, follow me. Linda, follow me. Lyle, follow me. Dan, follow me. Listen. I've got a new story for you. I've got a better life, a new life that you can walk up and rise and walk with me you are not too far gone you're not too far gone Jesus we respond this morning by following you that's it leaning in. You want to have breakfast with us? I'm all in. <laughs> God, we love you. God, woo us back. Scripture says you draw men to yourself. Just woo us back. Thank you, Lord. In your mighty name we pray. Amen.